History. History. Through the eyes of those who lived it. This is Hometown Heroes. Presented on the air and online by Provident Payments. Proudly honoring the men and women whose service and sacrifice have secured our freedom. Now, the host of Hometown Heroes, Paul Leffler. Welcome to another edition of Hometown Heroes, a program that reminds you no matter where you live in this great country of ours, no matter how big or how small your hometown might be, there are stories there that should not go untold. And we've learned, of course, that they don't have to go untold. As long as we're willing to take the initiative and ask some questions and then listen patiently as memories from long ago take on new meaning in the here and now. Our goal is to honor our veterans for their service and sacrifice, to preserve their stories so we never forget the price that's been paid for our freedom. And in that process, not only are we educated, not only are we entertained, but so often we find ourselves inspired by these stories from our greatest generation. Fairfield, California is a city of roughly 120,000 in Solano County. In fact, it's the county seat. It's known as the headquarters of Jelly Belly. You can even take factory tours there. And since Fairfield is also home to Travis Air Force Base, it has a significant veteran population. Quite a few of those veterans live at Paradise Valley Estates, a nonprofit life plan community for the 60 and older crowd, and I had the privilege of speaking there recently. Over the weeks and months ahead, you'll meet some of the special people I got to meet. Among the residents at PVE, as the locals call it, is one of our last living links to the liberation of Dachau Concentration Camp. You've heard Dan Doherty's name on this program before, thanks to his friend Alex Kershaw, the prolific World War II author. But there's much more to Dan's story than just the horrific scene he witnessed in April of 1945. And we're going to get to hear it from this 98-year-old Army veteran himself, starting with his childhood. Well, I remember very well. I grew up in Austin, Minnesota, and graduated from high school there in 43. And it was just a wonderful place to grow up as a child. Uh, It was rough because of the snow, but, you know, when you're sledding and tobogganing and doing everything else. It's a, it's a lot of fun. But then uh, on Sunday, April, I mean, uh, December 7th, we were sitting in our living room and the radio comes on about Pearl Harbor. And the first thing they announced was that Arizona had been hit. Mm. Well, my dad's brother, we knew was on the Arizona. And uh, my dad's face just turned white. And and, uh, he went down on the Arizona. And so from that just changed everything because I was then about a freshman in high school. I was 16. So everything was geared toward knowing that I would be going into the Army uh, when I graduated in 43. And some of my buddies qualified for the Navy V-12 program and quit high school right then and there and joined that and went right into junior college. And They got themselves a very good college education during the war. Well, I couldn't qualify because of my eyes. Mm -hmm. So I took the A-12 test to get into the Army college program. And I passed and then they told me to join the inactive reserve. So in High school, I was in the inactive reserve and then did nothing. But the day I graduated uh, on the 6th, a week later, I got noticed uh, for active duty and was inducted in June 23rd, 43. 
So I would have been drafted, but this this way I went right into the Army. And the goal was to see if I could get into the Army College program. And I did four months of basic training in the infantry at Fort McClellan, Alabama. And then at the end, they sent three of us that who had passed that test off to college, and we were at St. Louis University studying engineering. And this was in the winter of 43, 44. And then in March of 44, the Army decided they didn't need any more engineers, and they canceled the entire Army specialized training program for engineers. Mm -hmm. And thousands of us who were all privates were sent to depleted combat units. Our group at St. Louis went to the 44th Division, and we did the next six months finishing up in Kansas. The first week in September, we sailed from Boston, and we were the first ship to go direct to France. Mm. Everybody else went to the UK and then got ferried over, but we went right to Cherbourg, mm -hmm. and we got there the first week of September, so it's three months after uh, D-Day. And I want to ask you about some things along the way, but before I forget, I mean, you, you mentioned December 7th, 1941. And I've interviewed over a thousand World War II veterans, and almost everyone has a memory of that day, but very few a memory like yours. Yeah. I mean, this is your uncle, and, and I'm assuming that you had spent some time with him. I'll tell you, he, we were from Minnesota. He, was, he had joined the Navy in World War I mm. and stayed in and made it a career. And so when you're in Minnesota and he's in the Navy, you don't see him very often. But I only remember him one time, but he stopped through seeing his brothers. He was either about 39 or 40. I think he was maybe changing ships or what the occasion was. But he sat down with me and he told me what he did. He fired the guns on the Arizona. And he showed me how things would go back and forth, and when it was just right, he turned the key. Mm -hmm. And so I knew him just from that one little interview, but I remember it very well exactly where we were sitting when he told us about it. So I hardly knew him, but I, I knew enough so that the moment we heard it, we knew uh, it's interesting. We've always assumed he went down on the Arizona, but it turns out there was, there was a mass grave of about a hundred or so sailors from the Arizona who were buried in Hawaii. Mm -hmm. And they're now doing a DNA yeah. on all those things. And our son up in uh, Seattle has given his DNA for them. So they're checking to see if by any chance he's one of those. But otherwise, we would have, we just assumed that he was on the ship and and when it hit, went went down. But uh, and what was his name? His name was Ralph Doherty. And have you been there to the Arizona Memorial? Been there, and his name's up on the wall, Ari Doherty. And uh, another is one of my dad's brothers was graduated from West Point in mm. 1917 and went right overseas as part of the American Expeditionary Force. And he was killed commanding a battalion of the 3rd Division in the middle of Oct October 15th, 1918, just three weeks before 
the armistice. So when the armistice occurred, his family thought he was alive. Mm. And after the armistice, they got the telegram. So it was especially painful. And I, I knew that. And so toward the end of World War II, uh, I and everybody else was doing everything we could to, to stay alive because we didn't want to be a victim in the last week or so of the war. Wow. Just based on your own family's experience. Yeah. So, so if people aren't putting two and two together, so your, your father lost a brother in World War I and in World War II. He had another brother uh, that served in World War I. My dad was the oldest boy in the family, he was already married and had a child. And in World War I, they never got around to drafting anybody who was married and had a child. And so he was, uh, but he had, my mother had several brothers that were in the World War I too as well. Yeah, yeah they, they were that age. So your family had been a gold star family for a long time and, and you didn't want to have that happen again. Had to, yeah, yeah. And how many of your siblings were in World War II? I have a brother and a sister, and my brother was older. He he got an appointment to Annapolis and graduated in 45. So he graduated. He was there during the war and graduated in June and then went out on a minesweeper for the few months of the rest of the war. He, uh, he didn't stay in the Navy, but he got called back for Korea. And, and served again and then third out. But he ended up uh, living in Charleston, South Carolina. And, you know, you talked through the, the process. Uh, you go into the ASTP program. You're studying engineering at St. Louis till they say, sorry, we need some bodies over there. And, and then you're going across the Atlantic. Do you remember what was going through your mind as you left the states behind and headed to this world you didn't know anything about? Well, uh, I remember on the ship, uh, number one, we were part of a big convoy, mm -hmm. but they still had all kinds of uh, tests for in case the submarines and stuff. We had all kinds of practices thing, but we played cribbage mm -hmm. all the way over, some, guys, some other guys and I. We just hoped we would get there without having any incident al along the way. And it, it took about eight or nine, 10 days to get there. Had you ever been on a ship before? Not at that point, no. no. And then uh, it turns out to skip ahead, we came back from La Havre and went to Boston. And then in the summer of 1948, I went to England and I went on the same ship <laughs> that I'd come home on. How about that? <laughs> yeah. yeah, as a student, three years, three years later, yeah. But in between, uh, you saw a few things. And yeah. I'm, I'm always, I know it's hard to think back this far, but I'm always curious to understand the mindset. Because you're a teenager going off to a war that you know has claimed so many lives, yeah. including your uncles. Did you, did you have any thoughts as to whether you'd be making it back alive? No, I didn't uh, think about that. Uh, you're just living day to day and you're young and the whole world's ahead of you. But you, you know, especially when you're in the infantry, uh, that uh, there's a very, very high casualty rate. So uh, everybody who got into ASTP, the college program, 
some of those guys had been sergeants in the Air Force and Ordnance and and Quartermaster Corps, and they'd taken a cut to private because they wanted to go to college. And then they're in the college program, and boom, it quits, and not a single one of them made it back to where they'd come from or got their rank back. They all went into the infantry as privates, and they were hollering and screaming and wrote their congressman. They did everything. I I had just come from the infantry basic training as a private, so I was just going back to it. But uh, a lot of them had, felt they had a lot to lose, and uh, there was a lot of a lot of disappointment at that point for them. In fact, in we got home for Christmas one day for for forty three. And then I got back, and a lot of the guys had made it to their homes. And uh, we were in St. Louis, and they had been in, from Chicago. And one of them came back with an article from the Chicago Trib predicting an early demise of ASTP. <laughs> well, from that point on, we stopped studying. <laughs> What's the point? And, and uh, two months, three months later, it, it, it folded. It was good, good intelligence. I guess so. <laughs> yeah. So a teenager from Austin, Minnesota, was about to head overseas. It's time for our first break, but when we come back, Dan Doherty's experiences in combat in Europe during World War II and why a sprained ankle might have been a big blessing in disguise. Hometown Heroes will be right back after this. Hey, do you ever have those moments where you realize you've been settling for less than the best for way too long? Sometimes we just accept the status quo without looking around for better ways to do things. And I got to tell you, when it comes to your money, I think I've found a better way with EECU. Just take a look at myeecu.org and I think you'll see why. EECU is not a bank. It's a not-for-profit credit union that's all about taking care of you, the member. That's one of the reasons EECU just keeps growing and growing. Over 350,000 members now in 12 different California counties and access to more than 30,000 co-op ATMs and free online and mobile banking. But what I love most is how EECU always goes above and beyond to serve the community. A decade ago, the leadership and generosity of EECU helped establish Central Valley Honor Flight. By the end of this year, more than 1,800 veterans will have seen their memorials in Washington, D.C. for free. And that's just one example of the community involvement that EECU takes oh so seriously. Pick up the phone and become a member today. 1-800-538-3328. That's 1-800-538-3328. Proudly presented by Provident Payments, this is Hometown Heroes. Celebrating everyday Americans who answer the call of duty. Welcome back to Hometown Heroes and our conversation with Dan Doherty of Fairfield, California, originally from Austin, Minnesota. Among the mementos in his home are a Nazi flag he captured in Nuremberg and his World War II uniform, complete with a combat infantry badge and the Purple Heart. We'll hear about that. When we left off, his time as an engineering student at St. Louis University as part of the Army Specialized Training Program had come to an end because the need for manpower for the impending Allied invasion of Europe had led to the disbanding of ASTP. 
So here you are, a teenager heading across the ocean, and, and you get to France, and you're in the, the 45th Infantry Division? 44th at this point. We bivouacked in Normandy for the rest of September, just living there in tents. Then finally, in October, we all got on a train with old 40 and 8 mm -hmm. boxcars, and they took us. By that time, the fighting is east of Paris, and we relieved the 79th Division near Looneyville, France. We took over their foxholes, and they came out of there straggling one, two at a time, dragging their gear behind them, looking very disorganized. And our officers were really unhappy that this was our entrance to the combat. But I learned later the 79th had been fighting practically from D-Day. And they were just now being relieved. And they had a right to be, to, to look dis disorganized and beat up because they, they, they really did. Everything had been so secret about the whole process of going over her and everything was hush-hush. And our second night on the line, the Germans rolled up a loudspeaker and said, greetings, men of the 44th Division. And they told us the name of the ship we had come over on and when we had landed. And they said, why don't you come over and have some good hot chow with us instead of the K-Russian. <laughs> so we, we kind of at that point decided that the hush-hush hadn't meant too much. <laughs> mm -hmm. the, the Germans had known knew everything about us at the point. It was kind of funny. That's a unique welcome to the war moment, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it was. And that October, November, December, January, that was the worst part of my life. Uh, that was the worst European winter in 40 years. Yeah. And we spent the whole time in foxholes mm -hmm. with very heavy snow, and we were just constantly wet and cold and very poorly equipped. We had leather boots, mm -hmm. and once leather boots get wet, they don't dry out, and, you're, and trench foot and frostbite was a big problem. I mean, people were, guys were constantly going back to the Italian aid station because of frostbite and trench foot. That was just uh, miserable, and then artillery was the big fear, and you literally couldn't get out of your foxhole in the day because the Germans could see you. And so you, everything was done at night in terms of getting supplied and, and getting mail and stuff. But then in January, well, first I should mention in December, middle of December, I sprained my ankle. I was a BAR gunner. This 22 pounds automatic rifle. I sprained it real bad, so I had to go to the hospital. And so for about a little over two weeks, I was rehabbing in a hospital. So I missed what was the Battle of the Bulge. It didn't happen in the 7th Army, but Patton's 3rd Army, which was just north of it, had to go further north to help contain the Bulge. And the 7th Army troops, 44th, had to spread out and cover what had been Patton's front before. And so when I got back, the Battle of the Bulge is over, and 
Hitler realizes that he wasn't successful and he's desperate to be able to report a victory to the German people. He's had two years of defeats. He turns to Himmler, who's now, he's put him in charge of the southern half of the Western Front for the Germans. And he said, here, here take these troops. He had some extra troops he hadn't used. Take these and attack the Seventh Army. So New Year's Eve, Himmler's army attacked the Seventh Army. It's called Operation Nordwin. It was the last offensive, really, Hitler did. It was a desperate attempt to kind of retake Strasbourg. And they didn't, but they went deep into Alsace. And one of the things that happened was that the 45th Division, which was also in the 7th Army with the 44th, had six companies captured intact. When the tragedy like that happens, they immediately reformed those companies. And to do that, they got a commanding officer and an executive officer for each of them out of the regiment. They got four new lieutenants right out of Fort Benning in the replacement depot. They got privates right out of the replacement depot. And to provide some experience, every division in the 7th Army had to send sergeants to the 45th Division. And on one day, January 26, 180 sergeants were transferred to the 45th Division, 30 to each of those six companies. Well, I was a private carrying a BAR, private first class. The runner comes on the 26th, says, Doherty, report to company headquarters with all your gear. So I get there, and here's Pinky, Leonard Parker. We called him Pinky. And I said, he'd come from the college program like me, too. And I said, what's up? He said, I don't know. And then the first lieutenant, first sergeant comes out and says, Dan, you're a staff sergeant. Pinky, you're a staff sergeant. You're going to the 45th Division. Good luck. That was the extent of it. There was a jeep waiting. And with no chance to go back and say goodbye Mm -hmm. to guys we'd been with for 10 months, we got in the Jeep and left. And later that afternoon, we're dropped off in the little village in Alsace. And here's C Company being reformed. And the next day, 89 privates arrive. And we divvied up the privates among the four platoons. We trained for one week. (laughs) (laughs) Leonard and I had been with the 45th Division for seven months training before we got into combat. We trained for one week. (laughs) We did little exercises in the woods and went back to fighting. I'll never forget the last night in this little town, they told the enlisted men we all had to meet in the schoolhouse to hear the battalion chaplain. Well, I didn't know what this was going to be about. And we get there. And it's all dark. I could hear him loud and clear. There was no religious service. There was no prayer. He didn't mention God or Jesus or anything else. For about 10 minutes, he, in some very blunt language, he told us not to desert. Mm. <laughs> and I thought, my God, what have I got myself into? <laughs> well, after the war, I got the morning reports for my company. And so on those are the daily personnel changes. I was able to identify in those reports 50 guys who had been in my platoon 
between January and the end of the war. Five of them had been AWOL at one time or another. What I've decided is that some of them had simply walked off the battlefield in January and they missed being captured. And when they came back, we understood they'd come from the hospital. They'd come from the stockade. Because after a week or two of being AWOL, they went back and they would end up with a couple of weeks in the stockade and then they come back to the outfit. I learned all this after the, after the, they were pretty good soldiers after the war, after they came back. But that was the situation that I, we found ourselves in. So maybe it was better you didn't know that at the time, huh? Just as well. (laughs) Well, and, and, you know, something else that you said there that I want to circle back to. You mentioned spraining your ankle, which at the time I'm sure you weren't thrilled about, but have you ever wondered if, if it saved your life because you missed that time period? Well, I, I don't know. Uh, I've never really understood uh, what happened uh, during that period. Uh, it was all I know is uh, I was in a very warm hospital and, and everybody else was in a very cold uh, situated foxhole somewhere because the foxhole war is a very very difficult time for 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 GIs you're just totally isolated all day long you can't get out of your foxhole so you're in there with your buddy and uh, I I never really uh, thought thought about it that way but that I I know that the time that I spent in ASTP in effect gave me about a year not being in combat because when we finished basic training in the infantry in, in Fort McClellan, that would have been in October 43. Mm-hmm. Those guys got, except for the three of us who went to ASTP, those guys got one week furlough and then went overseas as replacements. Mm-hmm. Either went to the Pacific or they went to the thing yeah. and uh, that's what could have could have could have happened to me had it not been for ASTP. In effect, I got into combat a year later. Yeah. Instead of being October '43, it was October '44. Yeah, and you said something about you know the the life of a an infantryman in a foxhole, and you mentioned earlier trench foot and frozen feet. Did you suffer from any of those maladies? Well, I had awful. I didn't get trench foot, and I didn't. What I suffered from was I, my gloves got wet and got lost, and my hands were just beginning to swell up and turn red. One day, we were hiking in the mountains in Alsace in the Vosges Mountains. I stumbled onto the battalion surgeon. He was walking along, and I showed him my hands, and he took off his gloves and gave them to me. I always remember that. I also remember when I went back to the battalion aid station with the sprained ankle, the chaplain of the 44th was there. And I said, would you please, I knew my parents were really worried. So I said, would you please write to my parents and uh, tell them I'm okay. And I have the letter he sent. He just said, he said, I just talked to your son today and he's doing a great job. And he signed his name. So those are my experiences with chaplains. <laughs> Not necessarily the stories we usually hear about chaplains. And I'm curious because, you know, y- you alluded to the helplessness you can feel in a frozen foxhole in this scenario. So I'm wondering, what 
what occupies your mind in those what seems like an eternity in that foxhole? Well, every now and then we'd get something to read, maybe uh, Stars and Stripes or a, a condensed version of Time magazine or something. And my parents were very good about sending me packages. To send a package, it got to the point where the post office required them to show that I had requested a package. And so at the end of each letter that I wrote, I would say, please send a package. And they would give those to friends who would send, us, send me packages as well. Well, interesting thing happened. When you go to the hospital from the infantry, from the front line, your mail stops, of course. In the hospital, I've been there two, three weeks, and all of a sudden, one day, 13 packages <laughs> arrived. <laughs> and I'm, I'm in the hospital with guys I don't know, a lot of it is food I've got to eat, so I shared it with the guys that were there. But I was sorry that I hadn't got it when I was thinking. My dad used to go up to the high school during the war. You could can things mm -hmm. in uh, some kind of a home economics program for the citizens. And he would pop popcorn at home, take it up to high school, can it, and then mail it to me. So I would have popcorn. Thinking. A lot of that was what my... I received all in one day. Well, and, you know, I've interviewed a lot of guys that survived the bulge and, and heard a few different Christmas stories. I guess you spent that Christmas in the hospital? Yes, I did. And I have the menu that they served in that hospital. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite the menu Dan Doherty enjoys these days at Paradise Valley Estates in Fairfield, California, where the detailed talks he's delivered to his fellow residents have made a lasting impression. It's time for our final break, but when we come back, Dan will recall his closest calls in combat. Hometown Heroes will be right back after this. When times get tough and budgets get tight, a lot of businesses start slashing their marketing budgets, which all too often turns into a costly mistake. Instead, what if you could customize that investment to zero in on your target audience with surgical precision? And why am I saying what if? Because I already know you can with search strategy marketing. It's not about how much you spend, it's about the strategy behind it. And Search Strategy Marketing is ready to prove it to you with a free, no-obligation assessment of your current efforts. Learn how to outrank your competition with a free, customized action plan just for Hometown Heroes listeners. Just go to hometownheroesradio.com and click on that light bulb logo for Search Strategy Marketing. It doesn't matter what your business is, Search Strategy Marketing can lead you to the best way to connect with your customers. So look for that light bulb logo today at hometownheroesradio.com and plug into the power that can take your business to the next level. Ever feel like that dollar just doesn't go as far anymore? Well, join the club. Actually, you really should join the club. I mean, join the more than 350,000 members of EECU, the not-for-profit credit union now in 12 California counties. Free online and mobile banking, more than 30,000 co-op ATMs, and not just fair, but fantastic rates on auto loans, mortgages, and home equity lines of credit. Go to myeecu.org to become a member today, or just call this number, 1-800-538-3328. Honoring veterans from sea to shining sea, you're listening to Hometown Heroes with Paul Leffler. 
Brought to you by this local station and its sponsors. And presented everywhere, on the air and online, by Provident Payments. One of the fastest growing payment consultants in America. Connect today at ProvidentPayments.com. Welcome back to Hometown Heroes and our conversation with 98-year-old Dan Doherty of Fairfield, California. Perhaps he was your insurance agent once upon a time in Marin County. By now, you've gotten a feel for what a terrific storyteller Dan is. And if you're one of those folks who likes to talk sports and you ever have the privilege of meeting Dan and his wife, Norma, maybe you should ask him about the Major League Baseball game he and some fellow GIs witnessed just before shipping off to war. The Brooklyn Dodgers visiting the Boston Braves. Or maybe he'll tell you about the time after the war while playing basketball for Carleton College in his native Minnesota, he held a future basketball Hall of Famer scoreless. But in order to do that, Dan had to survive some trying times in the European theater as a BAR gunner in two different infantry divisions. It is, it's interesting. When I got transferred from the 44th to the 45th, when we went into combat, they took our duffel bags hmm. and stored them because you... You just you couldn't take all that stuff with you. And so when I got transferred, I said to myself, wow, I'm, I'm never going to see that duffel bag again. And I had two cameras in there. In March, we had two weeks of training in Alsace for crossing rivers, the Rhine, mm -hmm. and attacking pillboxes, the Siegfried Line. I had learned somewhere along the way that our bag, duffel bags, were stored in Saarburg, France. So I got permission to hitchhike to Saarburg. It wasn't very far away. Hitchhike meant you rode some military vehicle over there. Mm -hmm. And I found the warehouse with one guard, and he's guarding thousands of bags of the <laughs> 44th Division, and I have nothing to explain to him who I am. I just walk in and say, I was with the 44th and I'm now with the 45th. I'd like to get my back. Sure, soldier. <laughs> it took me three hours <laughs> to convince him. <laughs> I finally said, you get the bag and I will, I, I will tell you everything that's in that bag. And so he found the bag and opened it up and everything was in there, the two cameras and everything else. And so I got my bag, got the two cameras. When you're transferred in the middle of the war from one division to another, yeah. it's pretty drastic. Well, did those cameras end up coming in handy? Yeah, I, I couldn't carry them with me. So I had my, what was, it wasn't much in the duffel bag at that point, but the cameras. And I, so I gave it to the, our kitchen crew. Mm. And I said, please carry this. Whenever we, the kitchen crew was around, which wasn't very often, only happened twice. I got the camera out and took pictures, and I've got a lot of pictures mm. taken in April 8th, 9th, and 10th. Mm. And we hit Nuremberg on the 15th, Dachau on the 29th, Munich on the 30th. And so it was just oh, two weeks before, I got a great picture of our whole platoon. And then once in Munich after the war, of course, I took a lot of pictures. But otherwise, I only had it on two occasions when we were taking breaks. And I still have one of the cameras over there. It's a little Argus mm. candid camera. The other one was stolen when I was on furlough in Paris. It was a nice Kodak, really good camera. The good pictures I took were with that Kodak. Well, and I know we're going to end up at Dachau, and, and you've 
shared with so many people your experiences there that you're one of the last people who can tell those stories. But I'm curious, in the months that you had with the 44th and then your combat with the 45th, are there some moments you look back on and you say, you know, that was a pretty close call. I, I came closer to adding to my family's Gold Star legacy than I wanted to. Yeah. Well, in the 44th Division, the whole danger was artillery. And we would get shelled a lot. In those days, what we had for sleeping was a blanket and a shelter half. Hmm. And you rolled up the shelter half and with the blanket and you wore it on your back. And one night, I unrolled it and there was a piece of shrapnel had gone right through the, the shelter half. So that was about the, the closest that I came to really, uh, I got hit in the Siegfried line, but that was a very minor thing compared to that other one. But we had some bad days in the 44th from artillery. We had one was called Purple Heart Hill because just we got hit big, big shelling when we were on a hillside and a lot of people got hit. But there were two different experiences because the combat with the 44th and October through January, 44 through 45. That was a really cold winter foxhole weather. From January to May, it was a pretty much a totally different experience. You were constantly on the move. Snow was no longer a problem. You didn't dig a lot of foxholes, but you'd, you'd go from one battle to the next. So it was a two different kinds of, of warfare bunched up well and and you tell us about you know finding the hole that the shrapnel put in your shelter half and later on getting wounded yourself but along the way in both the 44th and 45th i'm sure you're seeing casualties and guys that you had spent some time with are getting killed or wounded how did you as such a young man how did you handle that process that well i guess uh you it helps if you're young i don't recall it being a big problem he just somebody would get hit and and then you didn't see and most of the time they would never come back occasionally they would go to the hospital and then mend and then come on back but you would be getting replacements so there'd be new people to know and meet I think the fact that you're young is why they're having you why you have you there it was tougher for the married guys Yeah. yeah they were getting letters from home and stuff and and most of us were about 19 and single. A lot of them had come out of pretty sad situations in the Depression. A lot of them had been in the CCC, Conservation Corps. I remember I, I had a watch that we used over and over for guard duty. The reason we did it was that most people didn't have watches coming out of the 30s. And my parents had given me one, and it was a, it was a totally different uh, situation than when you have all the prosperity that you have, you have today. I remember uh, the Depression very well. My dad had a good job all during the war. He was either working for a bank or a meatpacking company, but uh, there were people across the street. There was a doctor, and his patients would come and pull up and leave things at the back door. They'd leave produce and eggs and stuff. They were, they were paying for their medical expenses. And I remember in the 30s, my mother had a rug for sale. I guess she put a 
won that in the paper or something. I think she was, it was a living room rug, and I think she was going to charge $3 for it. And a lady came over to look at it, and she came in our house and saw this lovely furnished living room and started crying. And my, my mother ended up giving her the rug because she, she had nothing. So it was a tough time. And then all of a sudden you have this whole huge effort to mobilize for war. Well, thank you for sharing that because, as you said, you know, today's generations don't, don't have any idea yeah, what that's yeah. like. And I hope never do. And you mentioned getting hit at the Siegfried line, and, and you said that's not a big deal, but I want our listeners to hear it so they can make their own conclusions about it. In the middle of March, about March 15th, the entire Western Front moved into Germany. Germany had built their defensive line, the Siegfried line, opposite the Maginot line in France. All of a sudden, on March 18th, we're with tanks, and we're moving forward, and we come then. Here is the Siegfried Line. There's this huge ditch. It's about 15 to 12 feet deep and about that across so the tanks can't go past it. And on the other side, there are cement cones that you see, rows of them and barbed wire. That stopped the tanks, and so we just went down into the ditch and came up on the other side, the infantry, and started attacking the, the pillboxes. And the tanks behind us were just blasting away at the pillboxes that they could see. But it was very deep. It went for miles back in the, into Germany. Well, it was going quite well. And then all of it went. It was in very heavy woods, our section. And all of a sudden, the mother of all artillery barrages lands on us. The Germans know right where we are. When you are shelled in heavy woods, you get a lot of tree bursts. And so there's shrapnel coming from everywhere. And uh, we had 36 casualties in that morning. I'm walking along and I kind of stunned a little bit on the left foot. I, I wouldn't, wasn't even sure I had been hit, but I sat down in the middle of the Siegfried line and took off my boot. And sure enough, right at the ball of the sole of the foot, there was a slit. And then I had two pairs of socks on, and right at the ball of the socks, on the ball of the foot, there was a slit in the things. And then it's very hard to see the bottom of your, yeah. the ball of your, but I could see that there was a little blood there. So, but there wasn't any pain. But if you get hit, you're supposed to go back. And so there was a guy laying on the ground moaning. If you got hit, you were supposed to take your 12 sulfur pills. Sulfur had come out, and that's what they did for antibiotics. And so I went over to him and I said, "Have, have you taken your sulfur pills?" And he said, "No." And I said, "But I said, well, where, where were you hit?" And I rolled him over. He'd been hit in the stomach. Mm. Well, if you got hit in the stomach, you weren't supposed to take the sulfur pills. So I said, well, "We'll skip that." He was one of the fatalities. Mm. Uh, the thing. And I started walking back, and then there was a jeep, and I got in the jeep, and there were two or three other guys, one of them with a GI just bawling his head off, and he wasn't wounded. He was an identical twin, and his brother had been wounded, and he just collapsed. And uh, the Army's practice usually was to separate twins just because of that. 
but they had insisted on serving together. And when his brother got hit, I discovered in the morning report afterwards that he probably just spent a night in the battalion A station and went back. His brother survived the war. I mean, he was badly wounded, never came back. But that fellow was eventually killed in the Schaffenberg. I go to the battalion A station and the medic says, hey, you got a million dollar wound. You, you got this war made. The next day I'm in a field hospital and I'm on a gurney and the nurse an anesthetist comes over to administer the sodium pentothal. And I said to her, now, I want that shrapnel. <laughs> she said, sure, soldier. Well, I wake up and there's no shrapnel. So they give me the Purple Heart and I have my two socks with a slit in them and I wrap it around the Purple Heart and I go over to the Red Cross tent and I said, I want to mail this home. Sure, soldier. Well, they mail it home without the socks. <laughs> so I don't have, I can't even find the scar and I have no <laughs> evidence. <laughs> but I have the Purple Heart, it was worth five points to get discharged. Well. To show you how, how bad it was, I was wounded in the foot, and on the second day in the hospital, I played ping pong. Mm -hmm. So you can see this thing. And somebody saw me, and that was it. And I was out of there. <laughs> Back to, I, I regretted afterwards that I should have played part of the act better because I was on my way, way back to the front. I was the first one back of the guys who had been hit. I got back on April 2nd. I was wounded on March 18th. That's about as quick as you can do it yeah. because it's a process of going through replacement depots one after another, and you you just move when they move you. And, and I came back, and we had gone into the Siegfried line at absolutely full strength, which in a platoon was three squads of 12 guys plus two sergeants. That's 38 plus a plat an officer which is 39. I made it count 13 when I got back. Wow. Our company had just been decimated, and there are six officers in a rifle company. Five of them had been casualties that day, mm -hmm. and there were six sergeants in our platoon. F one guy, one sergeant, was not a captain. He became platoon sergeant, mm -hmm. and I came back and resumed being a squad leader. I came back and discovered that they had been fighting for a week at a Schaffenberg. A Schaffenberg is near Frankfurt on the Main River. And when the 45th Division was approaching it, they expected to find white sheets hanging out of the windows because Patton's army had already announced they'd taken a Schaffenberg, which meant their tanks came to it, went around and went going. Unbeknownst to everybody, a colonel had rounded up 5,000 German troops and dug them in and said, you will defend Aschaffenburg with the threat of death. Anybody who called in sick got hung. Mm. Well, the 45th discovered they were on a, had a real battle on their hands. took a week. I came back the last two days of that. Our company had had 23 more casualties at Aschaffenburg. So between the Siegfried Line and Aschaffenburg, which happened within a two-week period, uh, they'd lost about 60 men, which is a, a lot of guys. And then they gave us a three-day break early in April. Then we resume hiking, and on April 15th, we end up at Nuremberg, and we have it surrounded, three divisions, the 42nd Division, the 3rd Division, and the 45th. 
anybody but Hitler been in charge, they would have surrendered the city. Instead, they defended it. And so the first day, we just sat on the bluffs and watched the Army Air Corps planes routinely dive bomb the city over and over again all day long. When we left Nuremberg, it was just total rubble. I've got pictures of it. There's just nothing standing. Four days later, the three divisions, in effect, met in the center of town, and that was the 20th of April. To find a place to sleep that night, we had to hike all the way back out into the suburbs to find a building that was standing. And we got a day or two of rest, and then they dispatched the 45th and the 42nd Division towards Munich. And it was along that journey that Dan Doherty would encounter the awful realities of the Dachau concentration camp, a chapter of history that he has dedicated much of his golden years to preserving and articulating. And that's what we're going to explore next time on Hometown Heroes. You can link to photos and more information relating to Dan's story at hometownheroesradio.com. And don't miss the rest of his story next week, from what he saw at Dachau to the connections that have ensued to why he feels it's so important to tell the story. Before we sign off today, I'd like to thank longtime listeners Kevin and B. Olson for connecting me with Dan, one of their Pleasant Valley Estates neighbors in Fairfield, California. And thank you for listening today. I'm Paul Leffler inviting you to join us again next time for the rest of Dan Doherty's remarkable story, which will once again reinforce those four words we finish with each and every week. Freedom is not free. To let Paul know about a veteran in your life, visit hometownheroesradio.com and click on Suggest a Veteran. Today's program has been brought to you by Provident Payments. Give your business the edge only their personalized service can deliver at providentpayments.com.